Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 1st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal agreed with the trial court ruling that the workers' compensation exclusive remedy provisions ends a workers' wrongful termination case. The plaintiff in this case, Marianne Garcia, began her employment with Poker Flat in 2006 when she was hired to be Poker Flat's office manager. Poker Flat is a property owners association located at Lake Tulock in Calveras County. The employer maintained a boat launch and docks on the lake and charged association members to use the facilities. Members would pay a fee for a boat sticker and gate card to access the gated community and boat launch. At some point, a financial discrepancy came to the attention of the association, and Garcia was placed on administrative leave while an accounting firm investigated the issue. But her absence resulted in a greater work burden for her assistant, Stacy Halstead. Her assistant became frustrated over her working situation and posted an expletive-ridden message on Facebook about her situation, blaming Garcia as the thief who was responsible. Subsequently, the accountant's report recounted significant irregularities, including a lack of deposited money to match member payment entries in the ledger book. The following day, Garcia's employment with Poker Flat was terminated, effective immediately. So Garcia sued her former employer, Poker Flat Property Owners Association Incorporated, alleging she was wrongfully terminated in retaliation for reports she made to Poker Flat's board members concerning sexual harassment and other claimed violations of law. But the trial court granted summary judgment in favor of Poker Flat. With respect to Garcia's wrongful termination and retaliation causes of action, the trial court concluded that Poker Flat's evidence established that Garcia's termination was for legitimate non-retaliatory reasons and that she failed to demonstrate any causal nexus between her complaints about Poker Flat's claimed misconduct occurring in almost every case years before her eventual termination. Then the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case of Garcia v. Poker Flat Property Owners Association. It said that Poker Flat's showing of a non-retaliatory reason for terminating her employment entitled the association to judgment as a matter of law unless Garcia would show there was nonetheless a triable issue that decisions leading to her termination were actually made on the prohibited basis of retaliation. This she did not do. They also said that Labor Code Section 3602 Subdivision A establishes the exclusive remedy provision, which applies unless certain exceptions are met. Subdivision B of this section sets forth three circumstances in which an employee may bring an action at law for damages against the employer as if the exclusive remedy did not apply, but none of those exclusions apply in this case. 
Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, over 50,000 incarcerated persons in California state prisons have been infected by COVID. At least 240 of them died from the disease, and many more have been hospitalized. So a federal judge ordered the state of California to carry out a court-appointed receiver's recommendation that all prison staff be vaccinated by January 12, 2022. The federal judge found that California's plan for curbing the spread of COVID-19 in state prisons was woefully inadequate. Back at a July 29 case management conference, a court-appointed receiver stated that all efforts by the state to date have been insufficient to achieve the very high rate of staff vaccination that is necessary to further significantly reduce the risk that COVID will be introduced into its prisons. The state had argued that its current policy of requiring vaccines at two healthcare-focused institutions and for employees working in designated healthcare settings at 33 other prisons was a reasonable approach. Under that policy, unvaccinated employees were also required to undergo COVID testing twice a week. But the federal judge disagreed with the state's assessment, concluding that its failure to implement a vaccine mandate for staff constitutes a deliberate indifference in violation of the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which precludes cruel and unusual punishment. The judge ordered the receiver to draft an implementation plan, including a deadline for all covered persons to be vaccinated. The mandate would allow for certain religious and medical exemptions. Under current rules, prison employees must get vaccinated or submit to regular COVID-19 testing. The judge's order would eliminate the testing alternative for everyone except those with religious or medical exemptions. The court reviewed the receivers and plaintiff's filings in support of this order, and the state of California and its co-defendants and intervener, the California Correctional Peace Officers Association's filings, in opposition to the order, and the court agreed with the receiver that it is appropriate to set a specific vaccination deadline at this time. Thus, the court ordered that full vaccination of the persons covered by the order occur no later than January 12. In the process, the politically powerful prison guards union and Governor Gavin Newsom have requested a COVID vaccine mandate despite growing outbreaks, have resisted, excuse me, have resisted a COVID vaccine mandate despite growing outbreaks. Thus, the state of California appealed the order to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. Newsom's administration on Monday asked the federal judge to pause his order while the appeal makes its way through the appellate court. And the director of the Corrections Department's Division of Adult Institutions said in the filing that she's concerned a significant number of employees would quit or face firing rather than accept the vaccine. Los Angeles County reached a settlement with one of two restaurants sued earlier this year for allegedly disregarding the outdoor dining ban put in place last November to stop the spread of the coronavirus. 
Last December, County Public Health inspectors observed 18 to 22 customers eating and drinking on Crony's Sports Grill outdoor patio and also saw that a closure notice at the Agora Hills Eatery on Canaan Road had been posted on the front door the day before but was camouflaged by a banner. Crony's public health permit was revoked and a written notice was given to cease all restaurant operations as the county filed suit against them in Los Angeles Superior Court. Now, under the settlement, Cronies has agreed to pay $10,000 in abatement costs, plus $25,000 in suspended civil penalties, enforceable only if a court finds that the settlement terms have been violated by the restaurant. In the same lawsuit, the county sued the Tin Horn Flats Saloon and Grill on Magnolia Boulevard in Burbank. That part of the litigation is still pending. On December 15th, a public health inspector in that case saw more than 25 customers dining in the outdoor patio of the Tin Horn Flats restaurant. The property owner later obtained an eviction order against the restaurant operators in June. The city of Burbank created a page on its website to keep the community informed about the ongoing legal proceedings against Tin Horn Flats, which includes arrests made by law enforcement during the extended legal battle with that company. And now our crime report. The state's much-aligned Employment Development Department acknowledged that organized crime rings and inmates snatched $20 billion intended for jobless Californians. The loss is higher than the $11 billion estimate given earlier in the year by the EDD. The alarming admission came during an oversight session in which the department's brass updated lawmakers on progress being made to fraud-proof and revamp the agency. The embarrassing revelation that inmates on death row were able to apply for and receive benefits, while hundreds of thousands of legitimate claims went unfilled, spurred the overhaul of the department's leadership and its outdated customer service systems. The fraud not only sparked criminal investigations, but caught the attention of lawmakers who turned to the state's auditor for help. State Auditor Elaine Howell found the department was ill-prepared for a major economic downturn and essentially ignored recommendations her office issued 10 years ago in wake of the Great Recession back then. Howell told a joint budget committee that EDD's performance was poor before the pandemic, and then it just got miserable. The auditor said the department has implemented about 60% of the recommendations issued in her January report. The department has become clearing its deferred claims backlog, updated its website to be more transparent for the public, and renovated its call center. While Hall called the changes notable progress, she urged the committee to keep up with persistent oversight and make sure the department carries out the changes. The committee's chair, State Senator Wendy Carrillo, lamented the slow pace of progress, noting the department is still struggling with a massive claims backlog 
despite an influx of recent budget funding to help boost staffing levels. The Labor Commissioner's Office has cited NGC Construction Incorporated more than $7 million for wage theft violations, affecting 724 workers. The company sent workers, who usually worked eight-hour shifts, to commercial and residential construction sites throughout the Central Valley, from Arvin in the south to Modesto in the north and Paso Robles in the west. The Labor Commissioner's Bureau of Field Enforcement opened its investigation into NGC construction in 2018 as part of a Labor Enforcement Task Force on-site inspection prompted by a worker's report of labor law violations. The investigation found that the Visalia-based drywall company paid workers a fixed amount per project known as a piece rate. The workers who put up drywall provided painting services and stucco application, were not paid for non-productive time, resulting in workers earning less than minimum wage and less than the contract wages promised by the employer. Some of the company's truck drivers were also not paid overtime. The Labor Commissioner cited NGC Construction, Inc., along with Julio C. Mendoza, President and CEO of the corporation. And in regulatory news, back on September 15th, the Division of Workers' Compensation announced that the 2022 minimum and maximum temporary total disability rates would not change for 2022. But then they quickly withdrew that announcement based on a finding that the state average weekly wage data posted by the U.S. Department of Labor, data that's used for the calculation, was preliminary and incomplete. Now, the DWC just announced that the actual 2021 minimum and maximum temporary total disability rates will indeed increase on January 1. The minimum TTD rate will increase from $203.44 to $230.95, and the maximum TTD rate will increase from $1,356.31 to $1,539.71 per week. Under the labor code, workers with a date of injury on or after January 1, 2003, who are receiving life pension or permanent total disability benefits, are also entitled to have their weekly rates adjusted. The framework of a deal on President Biden's social spending package unveiled this week does not include allowing Medicare to negotiate lower prescription drug prices, leaving out a major Democratic priority and an issue that may impact drug prices and workers' compensation. A senior administration official told reporters there were not enough votes among Democrats to pass the policy. The absence of drug pricing in the package is a major failure for the party on one of its key campaign pledges. Senator Kristen Sinema, as well as a small handful of House Democrats, were seen as obstacles to passing the policy. The proposal is extremely popular with voters. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll 
this month found that 83% of the public supported allowing the government to negotiate drug prices. The absence of drug pricing measures in Biden's new spending framework is a major victory for the pharmaceutical industry, which fought hard against the proposal with lobbying and a seven-figure ad buy and has long been a powerful force in Washington. Drug companies warned that regulation of their prices would harm their ability to do research and bring new treatments to the market. And in medical news, SARS, MERS, and COVID-19, all our coronaviruses and coronaviruses caused all three of these diseases. And scientists are betting that other members of the viral family will cause new outbreaks. But what if a single vaccine worked against all three coronaviruses, past, present, and future? So researchers from San Diego to Boston are racing to turn that possibility into a reality, and they just got some major help. The La Jolla Institute for Immunology announced that the president of the organization won a three-year, $2.6 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to develop a so-called pan-coronavirus vaccine. And she's part of a larger effort led by Brigham and Young Women's Hospital in Boston and joined by researchers at MIT, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Boston University. Scientists in Boston were studying people who have been vaccinated or recovered from COVID-19, searching for immune responses with the potential to fight off a broad swath of coronaviruses. For this strategy to work, researchers must identify parts of the viral surface that won't change from one coronavirus to the next and train the immune system to go after these shared regions. The La Jolla Institute for Immunology team will handle the design of the vaccine itself. The full grant lasts five years with additional funding to arrive in year four. By that time, the Institute hopes to have a clearer census of how a pan-coronavirus vaccine should be administered. That means knowing how many doses people need, how far apart shots should be spaced, and whether the vaccine should use proteins, RNA like Pfizer's and Moderna's shots, or some other approach to spark immunity. And plenty of other researchers are chasing the same goal. Just a 10-minute drive from the La Jolla Institute for Immunology Scientists at Scripps Research are also working toward a pan-coronavirus vaccine in partnership with the Gates Foundation. One of them is employing the same strategy his team has used to study HIV for decades, closely examining antibody responses for clues on how to reverse engineer a vaccine that could spark broad and long-lasting protection. And in other industry news, For the third consecutive year, the Hartford has ranked number one for digital capabilities in the Knova Group's small commercial insurance scorecard. This competitive benchmark study evaluates the top 10 small commercial insurance brands 
across four categories and tasks, including functionality, ease of use, privacy and security, and support and access. The scorecard reviews the digital experience of 10 of the largest carriers. Hartford competed against Allstate, Chubb, Geico, Hiscox, Liberty Mutual, Nationwide, Progressive, State Farm, and Travelers to win the first place. And Hartford received the top rating significantly overperforming all of its competitors across the key areas of digital self-service, including claims and the ability for prospects to easily obtain an online or mobile quote and buy small commercial insurance. This annual competitive scorecard evaluates the digital capabilities of carriers supporting small business insurance, such as business owner's, business owner's policy, property liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto insurance policies. Stephanie Bush, the head of small commercial and personal lines at the Hartford, said that the recognition as an unrivaled leader for the third year in a row is a testament to many years of investing and in what makes a difference to customers and agents. She says the Hartford has been insuring small business owners for more than 200 years and was one of the first carriers to create a dedicated business unit for small commercial customers more than 30 years ago. The company, along with its agents, serves more than 1 million small business customers. Employers Holdings Incorporated, a holding company with subsidiaries that are specialty providers of workers' compensation insurance and services that are focused on select small businesses engaged in low-to-medium hazard industries just reported its financial results for the third quarter. They reported a record number of ending policies in force, up 6% since year-end. Gross premiums written were $152.3 million, up 16% year-over-year. Net premiums earned of $147.1 million were up 2% year-over-year. And the company repurchased nearly a third of a million shares of its common stock at an average price of $40.54 a share. The chief executive officer commented that employers closed the quarter with yet another record number of policies in force. And its written premiums, which were up 16%, were the highest they have been since the first quarter of 2020. Employers maintained its current accident year loss and LAE ratio on voluntary business at 63.6%, top down from 65.5% a year ago. Indemnity claim frequency continues to be down in recent periods, while indemnity claim severity remains moderate. As part of employers' continued technology and process improvements initiative, it implemented a new comprehensive claims system during the quarter, which it believes has enhanced and streamlined claims handling processes. Underwriting administrative expenses of $37.4 million was down 19% from a year earlier. The decrease was primarily a result of targeted expense savings, mainly in the areas of compensation and professional fees. 
and its Serity operating segment, which offers digital workers' compensation insurance solutions directly to consumers, continues to grow while remaining within its targeted low-hazard groups. The CEO believes that Serity's technological and intellectual capabilities will support future growth initiatives and provide direct access to workers' compensation insurance for businesses seeking an online experience. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.